Hey everyone, welcome to episode 84 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's guest is Andrew Klinger. Andrew uh, specializes in deep sky astrophotography, and so we take a very deep dive into that topic together. I thought it was a real treat for anyone who's looking to get into this type of photography, and I know it really renewed my interest in wanting to photograph the night sky, so I can't wait for you guys to, to listen to this one. Um, special thanks to our awesome Patreon supporters and our podcast producers. Uh, these amazing, uh, people contribute at the $20 a month level or higher on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash F stop and listen, Michael Howard, Jack Curran, Eric Stensland, Chris Rice, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, and Jason Matias. You guys are so awesome. Thanks for supporting the podcast. I hope you enjoy the, this episode. Awesome. Well, Andrew Klinger, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I've never done anything like this before, so it should be exciting. Awesome. You're a you're a virgin. Yeah. <laughs> Not literally. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give me your worst. All right. <laughs> right on, man. Well, so actually, you got recommended to me um, from one of our former uh, podcast guests, uh, Rajesh. Um, he lives kind of in the same area as you in, in Dallas, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, he had mentioned to me that, uh, you know, you were like super hardcore uh, into deep sky astrophotography, which is <laughs> something yep. that I have been interested in, but have never tried myself um and so i thought it would be a really cool uh topic to have somebody come on the show and really just kind of talk through talk through that with us so i guess before we dive in dive in too deep maybe tell us a little bit about yourself um like who you are and um how did you get started in uh, deep sky astrophotography okay uh, so I was born and raised in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, so right in the big light pollution dome here. So, you know, I never really, like, noticed that you could see the Milky Way for a long time. Like, I would go camping a lot and all that, uh, but I guess I always was camping on the wrong time of year, or maybe the moon was up or something like that. So it wasn't right. until, like, I don't know, like, probably, like, my late high school years is when I actually, like, first saw the Milky Way. I was like, wow, that's really cool, you know, like... At first of all, I was like, well, what is that? You know, um, <laughs> I knew what I knew what it was, but it's, it's crazy. And then so that really like kind of sparked my astronomy interest. And then uh, so basically, like I had I did not know how to use a camera like whatsoever, you know, and it wasn't until I was playing with my girlfriend's camera, you know, out by the lake uh, when it was like I've seen people online take photos of the Milky Way, but I didn't know that it was possible. Uh, sure. So I was like, so I was like, well, you know, let's Google it real quick and see what you got to do on the camera. And so we, you know, Googled it real quick and took a photo of the sky. And, you know, you couldn't see much because we we're in the city. But it's like, wow, you know, like there's stars in this photo that weren't showing up, you know, visually. So that's kind of like what sent me down the rabbit hole. And then it wasn't until a little bit later is when I kind of got involved in like the nightscape community. And I was like kind of hooked on like, you know, let's drive out somewhere and then take a picture of the Milky Way. You know, that was mm-hmm. that was kind of like my goal. And so I got talking with uh, like Rajesh and a couple other locals about, you know, just going out and taking a photo of the Milky Way. So I would drive out 
probably like in still in moderate light pollution. We'd drive out there and try to take a photo and you could see the Milky Way. It wasn't anything spectacular, but that's kind of like what got me hooked on the deep sky photography is, you know, like Rajesh went the whole nightscape route and becoming really good at it. And then I was like, well, I want to reveal all this stuff in the sky that you can't see with your eyes. So that's when kind of like went down the deep end and the whole deep sky astrophotography thing came to be. Yeah. So what are um, some of the, your favorite objects that you've captured in the night sky? So my favorite objects that I like to go for is kind of like, you know, pick your top 10 brightest deep sky objects, you know, but then I like to try to reveal all the faint dust around it that it normally isn't shown in images. So for example, the Orion Nebula, you know, if you've seen a picture of the Orion Nebula, you know, it looks kind of like a bulbous kind of space flower kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know how to describe it, but, <laughs> but then you look at like a, a deeper exposure of the Orion Nebula and, you know, pick your focal length. The whole frame is filled with dust. It's like insane. So I like to go challenge myself and kind of go for like the really faint stuff. Yeah. So um, I guess one of the things I've always been surprised by is that, you know, I think deep sky astrophotography is actually a bit more accessible than most people might think it is. And so maybe talk to us a little bit about um, what your experience has been in terms of how accessible it can be for, for photographers. Yeah, for sure. So, like I said, when I started out doing this, I actually was borrowing my girlfriend's camera, and it's nothing crazy. It was a Canon T3i with the kit lens. I think it was like 18 to 250 millimeters or something like that. So I had that and just like a static tripod and an intervalometer. And so as long as you drive out to darker skies, you take like a, I don't know, 15-second exposure at 18 millimeters, you know, point it anywhere in the sky and you'll see something, right? Mm -hmm. So no matter what equipment you have, like everyone probably already has equipment to start learning this hobby. Uh, it's just, you got to go out to darker skies and then point your camera up at a part of the sky. And like, once you kind of get comfortable with the sky, you kind of know where to point your camera, like where the objects are. And so even with that basic gear, you can take multiple exposures of the same chunk of sky and then throw it in software that will average out the noise and then leave you with like some cool nebula or something that's in that part of sky that you normally wouldn't be able to see otherwise. So like there is a huge processing learning curve to this, but almost everyone who's into nightscape photography has the equipment to start learning this. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about, um, processing like what well let's let's start with when you're in the field so one of the things I've always been curious about is like you know do you need a tracker like what focal lengths like what ISO shutter speeds like let's talk a little bit more technical about like how do you approach um, a problem in terms of trying to capture different objects okay uh, so I'll start out with something that everyone's familiar with, like the Milky Way, right? So, you know, pick your camera and lens and whatever you're used to taking a photo of the Milky Way with, use those settings. So let's say you go out and take a picture of the Milky Way. Well, go ahead and take, you know, like 30 more pictures of the Milky Way. And then so what you can do is 
throw all those frames in stacking software. And, you know, you lose the foreground aspect of it. Uh, so, you know, you, there are software where you can keep the foreground in, but it becomes trickier the more exposures you take. Uh, so you'll take a bunch of photos of, let's say, the Milky Way, right? And then throw that in software and it stacks it up, averages out the noise. And then you're left with like a Milky Way that's showing all this super faint dust extending out of it. So you take that and then if you take it a few steps further, you know, let's take a like a hundred millimeter focal length, right? Well then without a tracker, you can only take like a two second, if that exposure before the stars start to trail. So right. let's say you pointed at the Orion Nebula, you know, take a two second exposure of the Orion Nebula. And then I know it's like hard to find the Orion Nebula at first. So that's a project in its own. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> like you don't have any like computerized mounts like when you're starting out, like you're just kind of pointing, pointing your tripod so you got to like go to Google and like, where's the Orion Nebula? So look, once you do that, that's the hard part is finding it. And then once you're all focused and everything, uh, you know, you take like 100 photos of the Orion Nebula and each one is two seconds. So you can like barely see anything. And then when you throw all those in the stacking software, you know, it'll start to reveal itself. It's it's like crazy. It's like, wow, I'm doing this with, uh, you know, no tracker or anything. So, I mean, that's the best way to like just get out there and just do it, you know. Um, and then what it's evolved to for me is, you know, getting a tracker to counteract your counter, counter the earth's rotation. So right. I can take pictures, you know, five to 10 minutes long. And the longer you leave that shutter open, the fainter stuff you're going to capture. Yeah. And also I feel like you start introducing noise as well. So it, it's kind of a tricky, uh, I guess, uh, formula in terms of trying to figure out what the sweet spot is. Um, especially like what ISO and, you know, shutter speed and things like that is using a tracker. It's even more complicated. I feel like, cause I've used a tracker once and, um, I was just doing wide angle. So, and I did a couple, I got 55 millimeter, but it was pretty tricky. Like trying to figure out what ISO to use and shutter speed and things like that. Um, have you figured out any, like, I guess kind of easy to remember uh, ways to kind of dial in, uh, your exposure triangle? Yeah. So, um, I would say ISO is probably the least important, which is kind of counterintuitive to what you'd think, but right? <laughs> what you want to do, <laughs> what you want to do is find the ISO that you're that like, you know, if you're taking nightscape photos already, whatever ISO you're normally using, you know, for an older Canon camera, you're going to use 800 or 1600. Um, and then some of the newer cameras, you know, they're quote unquote isoless. And I don't know the specifics on how all that works, but as long as you're not using something too high, because if you're using something too high, you lose dynamic range. Mm -hmm. And so if you use like a nice, comfortable ISO, you know, maybe the fo one photo doesn't look great, but you can't let that really bring you down because you got to think of the end result, right? So ISO, it really depends on the camera. So in my specific example, when I was using the T3i, which is an older Canon, so it probably doesn't relate to the new cameras, um, I used ISO 1600 for untracked photos and then 800 for tracked photos. And it's really like, I hate to say it, but it really is trial and error to figure out that ISO. Um, but you don't want to go too low and you don't want to go too high. You just try to find the sweet spot. And then the next thing you want to determine is uh, the f-stop. And you want to go as open as you can, 
with still uh, sharp stars. So right. that's what you want to figure out. And without introducing um, coma, depending on the lens, I'm assuming. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, some of the cheaper lenses, you might have to go to F4 to get sharp stars. Um, obviously, the more money you spend, the faster you can go. And then after you figure out those two variables, the only thing left is exposure time. And really, you're just going to expose as long as you can before the stars trail, no matter what system you have. Um, obviously, if you have a really good system, you don't want to expose forever because there are you know, other factors that come into play. But that's pretty much the gist of the exposure triangle aspect of it. Yeah, so like if you're doing tracked shots of deep sky objects, um, like what's kind of a good range of shutter speed to use if you're doing like ISO 800 and let's say F4 or something like that? Okay, uh, so let's pretend we're imaging at, I guess, 200 millimeters focal length on a, a fairly inexpensive tracker. So kind of like the uh, Star Adventures kind of series. Mm -hmm. um, I would go somewhere between three and five minutes for, you know, pick your top 10 bright starter DSOs, deep space objects. Uh, between three and five minutes is going to give you a great result. Um, and the important thing is to get a lot of those exposures. So we call it in astrophotography, like total exposure time. So, you know, if you take five, three minute exposures, then you got 15 minutes of total exposure time. So you want to get that total exposure time up as high as you can manage without losing your mind. So <laughs> or without so freezing do, to death. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what I'll do is I'll spend a couple months on one target to get my total exposure time into like 25, 30 hours. Holy shit. And because really? that's really the only way you're going to remove all the noise and bring the faint stuff to the foreground. How do you line up all of your exposures so that they're in alignment? That's crazy. And yeah, so so that that is there is a trick to that. So if you're using just uh, well, it's it's really hard to do that with just a tripod. Um, you can do it, and when you do the final stack, you're going to cut a lot of the corners off. Um, but with trackers, they're polar aligned to the north to the Earth's axis. Right. So um, no matter what night no matter what night you're on, whenever you point that tracker to the target, it's always going to be in the same orientation, given you haven't rotated your camera in your lens. So let's say if you center the Orion Nebula every night on your tracker, it'll be the same orientation, even imaging throughout the night. So as long as you stick it right back in the center every night, you're going to cut off maybe a little bit of the edges when it's all through and done. Okay. <laughs> and then the the post-processing software then just realigns all of the elements in the photo? Yeah. So what's great is you don't have to be super... Um, like when I say I'm imaging the same target for two months, I'm not putting the stars on the same pixel each night. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right. So, So basically the processing, one of the first steps that you do is called star alignment. And, you know, a lot of the software will automatically do this for you. It'll take all your photos and then align them to one of one that you pick as a reference. So, the, yeah, I should have said that first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's not it's not as picky as you think. You can you can take a photo with something like off frame. As long as it's in the frame, your final product will be aligned. OK. And then are you also 
um, using uh, dark frames? Yeah, and calibration frames um, are definitely so, a must. So t- um, tell us a little bit about that for people that might not know about that stuff. Sure. Um, so when you take a photo at night, you notice a lot of grainy stuff in your sensor. Uh, so one thing, front and foremost, is tiny red and blue pixels everywhere. Those are called hot pixels. And what you can do is some cameras have it built in, um, dark frame noise reduction or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for astrophotography, turn that off, though. You'll want to do it all in one go. So what you'll do is you'll put the lens cap on your camera and then take a photo of the same settings you were taking of whatever you were imaging. So then you're left with a completely black photo, right? So that's called a dark frame. And then you'll take uh, what they call a bias frame. You'll just keep those same settings with the lens cap on and take an exposure as short as possible. And that'll map out your read noise. Um, don't, I don't, I don't really like know the specifics of read noise, but that's what it is. And then also, uh, they have something called flat frames. So you'll take a picture of like, uh, a tablet with a white screen open and that will map your vignetting of the lens. So in your stacking software, it'll ask you to upload your darks, bias and flats. And then it'll basically correct your frame. Uh, to remove those artifacts. Um, so for the bias, you said use the same settings except for your shutter speed, make it as fast as possible? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So like one, you know, 40 thousandths of a second or whatever it goes to. Uh-huh. And like yeah, okay. you'll you'll take a lot of the calibration frames too because you want to get a good average. But uh, so, when, so when you're all said and done, like how many images are you dropping into your post-processing for the stack? Um, so for the images of the object itself, you know, probably like a hundred plus, but don't get me wrong though. Like if you're just starting out, like as long as you have at least 30, you're going to get a good image. So I'm like kind of taking it to the next level to try to bring all the faint stuff out. So I don't want everyone, I don't want anyone to get turned off by this. Um, but I, I'll do like a hundred plus images of the object and then calibration frames. I'll get like, you know, like 30, 30 of each a lot more of the bias because they're quick. Um, and also don't worry about the calibration frame so much. If you're just starting out, just go and take pictures of the object itself and then, you know, get, get a result just out of that. And then af- after you get comfortable with that, you can start taking your calibration frames to get a better final result. Cause it is a lot to learn at once. And I, I get that. <laughs> so. so yeah, when you said calibration frames, I, um, is that above and beyond the dark frame and the bias frame? Oh, so I, I kind of group those onto one subject. So oh, calibration cal- frames okay. is dark bias and flats. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And the flats so, is like taking a picture of using the same settings, but of like a white tablet, like or a, a monitor or something. Uh, yes. Same settings, except for exposure time. Just stick the histogram in the middle. Okay, cool. Yeah. So just properly expose it. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> right yeah, on. I mean, those are all just cosmetic things that you'll want to you'll wanna do once you get into it. But uh, I don't want to turn anyone off with all the crazy different frames and everything. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like a lot of photographers are like me. Like, if you're going to do it, then do it right. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, by all means, jump in the deep end. Yeah. So um, and I usually don't talk much about gear and stuff like that on this podcast. But I think um, since it's not something I know a lot about, like when you're photographing 
deep sky objects, like what are some of the like lenses that you like to use? Okay, so it's really comparable to you know a glorified camera lens is what my telescope is really. It's a 81 millimeter diameter lens at 380 millimeter focal length. So it's not zoomed in very far. You know, you could fit probably four or five full moons across the diameter of my image. So the things that I'm taking pictures of are fairly large in the sky. Um, so basically, you know, it's just a glorified lens with a nice focuser on the back. So it'll, you know, keep its focus all night. And I, that's really the only telescope I have. I've, I bought, I went from using uh, kit lenses straight into a nice refractor te telescope for imaging. Okay. And so I've, how do you I've attach the, how do you attach the telescope to your camera? So uh, DSLRs, uh, you just get a T-ring adapter. Uh, it's like 15, 20 bucks. And it has like a, whatever the size of like the back of the telescope is, they're all pretty standardized. Uh, it's normally like one and a quarter inch or two inches. And it just slides right back in the telescope. And that's all there is to it. So it just, it acts like a big camera lens. Huh, that's cool. And yeah, then, it's, really, and then it's it, really not so different from like photography. It's like same language, same kind of everything. Huh, okay. That, yeah, I'd never tried attaching a, a telescope to my <laughs> lens. I'm assuming you could do the same thing with like a, look with a telephoto lens, like a 100 to 400 or 200 to 500 or something like that. Exactly. And um, I wouldn't recommend going, you know, a super high focal length. Uh, a lot of the things you're taking pictures of will fit nicely around 400 millimeters max in like some of the larger objects, like you can fit some multiple objects in one frame. You know, I would encourage everyone to start low first because there's less room for error, less mm -hmm. room for stars trailing. And then, you know, move your move your way up your lens collection until you find your sweet spot. Cool. Um, well, so what are um, I know that you said that you travel a lot and you you go up it sounds like you go up to um oklahoma tell me a little bit about like uh belonging to an astronomical society and like what are the benefits of that okay so when i started doing the whole deep space imaging thing i would just drive up into some uh some farm property and just on the side of the street just start imaging and uh it really wasn't ideal you know i didn't have any power or anything i was kind of Kind of away from civilization not the most secure spot i guess if random people driving by um so what actually became a part of was like my local astronomy club here in north texas they own private property up in oklahoma i know it's kind of ironic um <laughs> but but so it's uh out there if you're familiar with like the sky light pollution levels yeah. it's a portal three as where my backyard is like a Bortle 7. Right. So uh, about like a two-hour drive, and I'm getting out there in dark enough skies to see the Milky Way. Um, like, you know, almost horizon almost horizon to horizon is a little bit of bulbous light pollution. Mm -hmm. But um, it's really nice, you know, if you're looking for a nice spot to, like, get out and look at what other people are doing to image deep sky objects you know, look up your local astronomy club and like they'll have public events all the time where you can just show up and just look at gear. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's also nice because they have amenities there up at the dark site. So, you know, I got AC power without big light posts above it. Um, I, there's a restroom there and a bunkhouse to spend the night. 
So it's really nice, uh, you know, cheap, cheap as a state park pass uh, just to head up there and set up the scope and then just let it roll all night. Nice. Um, well, so we have uh, some listener questions that I wanted to throw your way. Uh, um, so uh, Jason Matias, who's been on the podcast with us before, one of the questions he had was, um, where do you go to network with people who own telescopes or should you invest in your own? <clears throat> okay, so I take that as, I'm guessing, where do you go to kind of learn about the gear used? Kind of. Yeah, or like if you don't own a telescope to be able to do this, like what's the what's a way for you to like maybe borrow someone else's or... Maybe, you know, okay. to like decrease your upfront investment in the hobby. Gotcha. Gotcha. So um, like we just touched upon, uh, find your local astronomy club and they will most likely have club owned equipment. So my personal experience um, up at my, you know, the club's dark side up in Oklahoma, you know, they'll have a closet up there with uh, like club owned telescopes that you can pull out and use if you're a member. And so then you can kind of like, you know, not all of them are suited for astrophotography because uh, astrophotography scopes really like are designed to have a flat field. So the stars in the corners aren't footballs and so they're not always suited for astrophotography. But if you want to like go up and like check out your, you know, use your astronomy club scope and just stick your camera on the back and see what happens, that is definitely the best thing to do. So like get in touch with your local astronomy club and like they're guarantee you there are people in there that are doing astrophotography. Um, in terms of uh, astrophotography, the uh, telescopes, um, how do you know if one is good for astrophotography and like what are maybe some that you recommend? Oh yeah, great question. So if you go to Walmart and buy a telescope, obviously that's not going to get <laughs> you a good photo. So there are things to look for and just like camera lenses, you know, the more money you spend, the flatter field you'll have, meaning the stars will be pinpoint all the way out to the edges and the faster the lens system, kind of the same, same thing, right? So in astrophotography, you're looking for, if we're speaking of uh, refractor telescopes, which have lenses just like camera lenses, we'll talk about those. So they're split into two groups, acromat and apochromatic. So achromat means it's not corrected for a flat field and the colors will be a bit off. So that'll be more like your department store telescopes and cheaper telescopes you can buy online. What you're looking for for photography is called apochromatic. And that means all of the, the red, green, and blue light will be focused at the same point and they do a better job at getting a flatter field out to the edges. Awesome. Um... And then I guess kind of taking that to the next step, like if you were to take a deep dive into getting an astro tracker, like which ones do you like and how big do they need to be in order to handle that much equipment? Right. So the best, or like, I guess the first advice that you'll ever hear from an astrophotographer is dump as much money as you can into the mount itself. It is like by far the most important part of the setup. So before you even buy a telescope, you know, buy, buy a good mount. And then you can throw whatever you want on the mount and take great photos. Um, so you really want to pick your focal length. And there are some framing simulators online. If you type in like a deep space framing simulator or something like that, I'm sure something will come up. And you can kind of like 
look at like a deep space object like the Orion Nebula and it'll show like a rectangle over it on what your field of view would be. So like find your field of view that, you know, looks good to you, preferably start a bit, you know, larger scale. And you want to like, so let's say it's a uh, hundred millimeter focal length looks pretty good to you. Um, obviously the lower your focal length, the cheaper tracker you can buy. So there are, I think they're called Skywatcher Star Adventures. Mm-hmm. They uh, have really good entry level um, sky trackers. And, you know, they could probably image up to like 100 millimeter focal length for probably five minutes or so without much problems. And as you increase your focal length, let's say you want to image at like 500 millimeters, you'll want a beefier tracker because there's more room for error, you know, like vibrations, you know, the stars might trail after X minutes on the cheaper tracker. So that's really where, uh, you know, the money will go up quick, the higher focal length you want to image at. So I'm kind mm-hmm. of in like the, uh, I want to say like beginner slash intermediate range at around 500 millimeter focal length. So I'm using something called a Orion Sirius, S-I-R-I-U-S mount. And it's it's pretty beefy, you know, it's not something you got to drive somewhere. You can't just throw it in a backpack, but it's definitely <laughs> it's definitely reliable you know, like I can expose for like, you know, five, 10 minutes without, without the stars trailing. Nice. And then and also wait, uh, wait, does the, the play too. Is the mount, uh, that's also the, the tracking system. Exactly. Yeah. So some, okay. some okay. mounts, uh, you got the tripod legs and then you have the tracking mount head. Sometimes they are sold separately. So you got to look out for that. Um, but you definitely want, you know, some beefy tripod legs so you don't get vibrations hmm yeah and uh how do how do those mounts typically uh attach to the tripod um so the tripods uh the ones designed for like versatility between different photographic tripods they should come with everything you need to just throw it on top of the tripod and i don't have personal experience with that um but i don't think that's too much of an issue and uh, okay. the ones you buy that are beefier they'll most likely come with the tripod itself and they just screw right on there uh, with a kind of a big uh, okay. bolt in the bottom. So you, I take it apart and throw it in the car. Yeah. I was just thinking like I have a, an older uh, get, so it's carbon fiber, but it's pretty beefy. Um, and I don't use it hardly ever cause it's so heavy. Um, yeah. But I, you know, it's for me, it's like, I wouldn't necessarily want to invest in another tripod. <laughs> right. And like, when um, I go imaging, like, I never go more than like 30 yards from my car because the equipment is just, it's, it gets heavy. Like the deep, the deeper you get into this hobby, the less you're going to move your equipment. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, Astro modified cameras. Uh, listener uh, Kirk Keys um, wants to know more about like your experience with them. And is it something you have tried using for, deep sky objects or has, is it more of a kind of, uh, astro landscape application? Okay. Good question. So a lot of your nebula in the night sky are going to be like either red or blue, or if you're in dark enough skies, you'll see that Brown kind of dusty nebula. So the blue nebula, they call it reflection nebula. Um, that will be picked up on any camera sensor quite easily as long as you're in dark enough skies. Um, now, the red nebula, which is called a mission nebula, 
it's uh it's kind of in that cutoff where most um you know daytime suited cameras uh have their i guess their cutoff for infrared light or something like that so Mm -hmm. you won't pick up that red nebula on a stock camera very well now you will pick it up but it's like a night and day difference from a modified camera so in my personal experience i was using the t3i and you know i hit all the brighter targets that'll be picked up by it you know the andromeda galaxy looks great on it you know you wouldn't even know it was with the t3i um (laughs) But then you go, you start to image these like fainter red nebula and they're just like barely showing up on the camera because that that emission is like cut off and it's the camera's response. So if you modify your camera, you know, I don't know how much people spend nowadays to get it modified, but they remove that IR blocking filter and uh, it'll allow more of that red nebula to show up on your camera. But here's the plot twist. Uh, these cameras, these astronomy cameras nowadays, the technology is evolving so fast that it's becoming quite inexpensive to get a good astronomy camera. And so hmm. where you may be spending like $400 to get your camera modified, well, you might as well save up $400 more and get a really nice astronomy camera that'll blow the results away from your modified camera. Really? Like uh, who makes those kind of cameras? Uh, so there's a few competitors right now in... Uh, some of them that I see uh, like right now coming up every year with new products, one is ZWO and then one is QHY. So them, their two are competing in like the kind of entry level market to really get like nice, affordable astronomy cameras. And uh, definitely like, you know, if you're ready to jump in the deep end, sure, go for it. But learn on what you have <laughs> first, you know, because there is, a, there is right. a big learning curve to using an astronomy camera. You got to be tethered to your laptop. And then take everything a bit more like systematically because there's no screen on the back. Oh, I see. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So um, Astro modified camera, like, you know, by all means, go for it. Like it'll you'll get better results shooting the red nebula. Um, if you're expecting to get better results just shooting the Milky Way, you might not see much difference. It's really more to get that red nebula popping through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know the Nikon made like a, I think it was the 810A that had like a modified sensor to pick up more of that um, that red spectrum that you're talking about. But I never, I never got a chance to use one. Yeah, um, and now the price on that, you know, is very comparable to entry astronomy cameras. Right. Yeah, because it's you know t- two generations old. So yeah. It's, and technology is yeah. evolving quick on these cameras. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so let's, uh, same listener, Kirk Keys. he kind of wanted to know a little bit about light pollution and that, you know, as a, someone who does a lot of Milky Way photography, you know, light pollution is the bane of my existence. But, uh, his question is, um, he's heard that you can shoot deep sky objects, um, in areas with relatively high light pollution. Uh, what's your take or experience with doing that? So there's there's two sides to this story. Uh, first, like you know, if you're just using uh, a standard DSLR and a tracking mount, you can expose for probably I don't know, maybe less than 30 seconds before it gets overtaken by light pollution. And if you have a tracking mount, like you can for sure point it at a brighter deep sky object, and it'll take more total exposure time, like I was talking about earlier. So you might need to shoot, you know, one target all night and get bunches and bunches of 30 second exposures. 
And then uh, when you go to process it, you'll for sure get a result. It may not be what you were envisioning in your mind, but it will be a result. And that'll probably be exciting in itself. Um, but dark skies, there's really no substitute for dark skies. Like you drive out to dark, dark skies and take one thirty second exposure. It'll be as good as two nights worth of shooting in the city. Mm-hmm. So, right. I mean, there's that side of the story. And then so it saves you a lot of yeah. time. Yeah. And like the results will be instantly better in dark skies. Um, but by all right. means, practice the technique, you know, in your backyard. Nothing wrong with that. And then uh, so the other side of the story is if you're in the, you know, astronomy camera scene already, you know, there are special filters you can use to image certain nebula right from your backyard. And they take these filters, take thin slices out of the visible spectrum and just allow that certain nebula to pass through into your filter. So in that oh, aspect, yeah, like so in that aspect, I can image on any clear night out in the backyard even with the full moon. Um, but only certain targets I can do that with. Huh. So they make special filters just for these very specific objects? Yeah, so it's kind of huh. like, uh, and you see the Hubble Hubble images, they look kind of all like rain, cool like rainbow-colored images. Um, right. A lot of times that's called like narrowband imaging, and what they're doing is they're imaging in sulfur, hydrogen, and oxygen, rather than the whole broadband spectrum. So what that leaves you with is three monochrome images that you then assign to color channels to show where the specific elements lie in the nebula. So you can do that from like your backyard with astronomy equipment. Um, It's not a natural color image, but you're getting a lot of cool detail out of the nebula. But that's on the deep end, you know. Yeah, that well, I I mean. I think that's cool. I, I think you just uh, actually just did a, a great segue into another listener question. And it's something that I constantly see uh, debates about on like Nightscaper and f- communities like that. Um, uh, listener uh, Nate Weaver uh, asks, um, unlike most natural photography, astrophotography images vary widely with different colors and contrast for the same object. I think we've all seen like this purplish and bluish Milky Ways. And then we've also seen like the, the reddish goldish Milky Ways and everything in between. Um, how do you feel about that? And um, should we strive for accuracy or is all the artist interpret- interpretation we see? Okay. Okay. So for sure we should strive for accuracy, but I'll separate this into like kind of two different sections. Uh, so the first, okay. so the first section is what we just talked about, uh, narrow band imaging. So this can be like yeah. kind of easily dismissed because what you're left with in narrow band imaging is three monochrome images. And your goal is to create an aesthetically pleasing image to show where the certain, uh, you know, elements lie in the nebula. So there is no way to make a natural color image if it's using narrow band, um, so a lot of times if you see like a rainbow colored image and it looks like super crazy, look in the description and if it says shot with shot in narrow band or with sulfur, hydrogen and oxygen filters, you can like expect that to be a false color image. So that's one side of the story. So now on the other side of this, well, story, let me ask oh, yeah. you before you before you keep going, let me ask you a kind of a little side question to that. So um, it's might be hard to answer, but if, if we were floating in space, we weren't on Earth, but we had a telescope and we could look out into the sky like with the Hubble or some other instrument, 
Like, would our natural eye be able to pick up any colors from those gaseous clouds? Or, um, like, is there something about uh, shooting them with special equipment that brings out those gases? Like, does that make sense? Yeah, no, good question, actually. Um, So, out out at the astronomy club there, there there's some people that do visual astronomy. So, you know, they'll bring a huge, like, light bucket kind of telescope, not designed for photography, but you stick an eyepiece in it, and you can, like, look at nebula and galaxies. So our eyes suck at seeing in the dark. Um, And basically, like when you're looking at these galaxies and nebula and these big telescopes out there, you're looking at colorless, fuzzy white shapes. So like you can for sure see the shapes of these things out there like in a big enough telescope. But um, our eyes aren't sensitive enough to pick up these really faint colors in the nebula. So like I said, I'm taking five to ten minute long exposures. Like that's letting in a lot of light into the sensor to bring out those colors in the first place. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, And then I guess my other question would be, if you were to look at those nebula, if our eyes could see them in their natural state, like the the camera is able to, like what colors would we actually see? (laughs) And yeah, yeah, good question. And I was going to touch on this as well um, in the second part, but Pretty much most of your nebula in the sky are either red. Um, those We call those like emission nebula. They're emitting light or blue as if um, the star next to a gas cloud is kind of lighting up the gas cloud. And those normally light up as kind of like a blue color. So if mm-hmm. our eyes were sensitive enough, it'd be a lot of reds and blues and like that brown non-reflective dust also. So not much, not much uh, straying from the path from browns, reds and blues. But I'm not hearing you say that the Milky Way looks green or purple. Right. And I mean, the Milky Way, you know, for sure, like there's there's all the colors in the Milky Way, you know, but it's not any you're not going to see a purple, huge purple blob. You know, I mean, well, some nebula may appear more purple than red, but uh, aside from sky glow, you know, there's not too much green out in space. Right. (laughs) And uh yeah, it's it's funny. Um, that I feel like that debate comes up all the times with uh, astrophotographers. Like, um, I can't remember the dude's name, but uh, he has a whole website about like the natural color of the night sky. And oh, I know, who, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I don't know. Every time I look at those photos, I'm like, that's just way too red. Like the night sky is dark. You know, like are we talking about an accurate representation of what the colors would look like? if our eyes could see those colors or are we talking about an accurate representation of what we actually could see? You know what I mean? And Oh man, like the, the arguments go on and on. <laughs> there is, I don't think there is a right answer to this. Like everyone has their, you know, opinion on what is real color. Uh-huh. And it's, it's hard. It's hard uh, to know what the real color of space is without a reference, you know, because like we get our color on earth here from our sun well, not every star in space is emitting the same color, you know? Uh-huh. So it, it takes you down the rabbit hole of what is real color, you know? Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Um, but to, yeah, but to touch on the other side of his question, how we see um, images, this, how we see the same image, let's say the Orion Nebula, it's a popular one. Um, we see 10 images of the Orion Nebula, all shot with the DSLR, and they all look a little different. So you can... I can chalk most of that up to just the learning curve of processing. 
So if you're imaging in with a DSLR, uh, which would be in natural color, or if you have an astronomy camera, you'll image in red, green, and blue filters. That gets you the broadband spectrum. So theoretically, everyone should have the same color image, right? But there are so many variables in play, like when you're like learning how to do deep space photography, like so white reference, for example, like when you're processing your image, like what are you going to use for a right white reference? You know, there's no big white t-shirt in space to look at. <laughs> so, so there are several tricks that astronomy processing software will do. One being if you're imaging a big galaxy like the Andromeda galaxy, you can use the entire galaxy as a white reference because it's it's a thinking like, well, if every color of star is in that galaxy, then the average of it should be white-ish. So that's that's one trick that software uses. Another trick that uh, some software uses would be to look at your star colors and compare that to actual scientific data and adjust your colors that way. Um, that sounds starting tedious. Out, you know, it's, it's actually fairly automated, huh. um, but not everyone has that software starting out. So what's more common is actually just to make your background sky a neutral color. So like, you know, not red biased or blue biased, just kind of like a neutral gray. Uh-huh. So that's like the more straightforward way when you're learning to color balance your image. But then you got to think, well, if you're imaging in light pollution, there's a lot of red in the sky. And then so if you take out the red in your sky, you're also taking out the red in your nebulas. So it's like it's it's pretty challenging. So if I see like a crazy colored Orion nebula, you know, like a lot of times I can diagnose it and be like, oh, so like. They, they got it down, but the color correction part's tough, you know, hmm. and I get that. So I feel like everyone's trying to be as accurate as possible, like, you know, in their mind. But it really is a tough thing to nail down that you can only get with practice. Mm-hmm. What, um, what software are you using to stack all of your images? So I'm using a kind of like all-inclusive software. It's called PixInsight, and it'll stack the images, and then also it has processing tools to process the image. But um, for anyone starting out, there's free software called Deep Sky Stacker. Right. And uh, it's actually not on Mac right now, and I, I don't know the Mac alternative, but uh, PC and it, some other software, you know, some other platforms, Deep Sky Stacker will stack all of your images together. But yeah, you can, you can shoot me a message after this. I'll help you work it out, um, get it installed and all that. But anyways... So Deep Sky Stacker will stack up all your stuff for free. It's a nice um, open source kind of software I think they're doing. And then you can process that final stack it gives you like in Photoshop, which most everyone probably already has. So, you know, start out like that. And then once you feel like you've reached the limitations, like then you can jump into a more specialized piece of software to get the most out of your data. Like what, what would you, if we were going to give our listeners a homework assignment to try this, for the first time using an equipment they already have, let's say a basic DSLR setup, like what would be a good homework assignment for someone to do and come back and try uh, to stack images to get a, a fairly pleasing result? Okay, yeah, this will be fun. And y'all should post your results on the podcast uh, Facebook page or something. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So, yeah. So grab your widest lens, I don't know, like, 18 millimeter, 14 millimeter, whatever. And uh, go out into, you know, you don't have to go out to dark skies, but if you do, you get a better result. And so the Orion constellation is rising about, it's kind of kind of rising kind of late right now. It'll start to get earlier, uh, maybe around like 11 or midnight-ish. 
to go point your camera at the Orion constellation, you know, the big... Yeah, and that's uh, in the east, I think, right now, right? Yeah, so it'll be uh, rising in the east probably around midnight. Uh, you know, the yeah. four bright stars, rectangles, unmistakable. And then yeah. inside, like, the bottom third in, in that rectangle is where the Orion Nebula resides. So go out and point it up at the Orion constellation. You know, choose your favorite ISO for night and wide open and then expose as long as you can before the stars start stars start to trail so you know probably like you know 12 15 seconds something like that and do that and then take like as much as you can until you get bored so let's <laughs> so, so let's just say that you'll have to move your nudge your camera every like 10 minutes or so to keep it centered as the earth rotates so then let's say you got uh i don't know like 50 exposures of the orion nebula and then go download deep sky stacker or uh, research a stacking software for free if you're on Mac. And then uh, go throw all your frames in there. It'll give you a uh, final output file. And then go to YouTube and look on uh, look up something like how to process deep sky photos with whatever software you already have. And then that'll give you a good uh, head start. And what you'll see in your image, you know, we hope, it takes a few practice tries, but what you'll see in your image is cool little like blobs of nebulosity appear in your final output file that you didn't see in single exposures so much. And uh, how important is it to, to do the um, reference photos that the, the uh, I mean, can you do those after the fact? Like you do, do you have to do those in the field? So the dark frames, um, they have to, your camera has to be the same, roughly the same temperature as when you were shooting. So oh, okay. if it's, let's say like, you know, 40 degrees Fahrenheit outside, you can take them in your garage the next night if it's roughly the same temperature. Um, the bias frames, you can take whenever, you know, in your room. The flat frames, uh, it's, it's recommended that you take the flat frames before or after imaging, like immediately. Uh, because what will happen is, like, if there's a big dust speck on your lens, the flat frame will correct that out. Now, if you take your camera inside, that dust speck might fall off, and then you're left with a dust speck in your image that can't be corrected. Um, but, you know, starting out, like, for sure, just worry about taking the the actual photos of the target. Well, cool, man. That's, uh, I, I feel like that would be a fun, uh, a fun exercise to go out and do. I know, um, for me anyway, it's not hard to get into dark skies. I can drive like 30, 40 minutes and I'm in like super dark yeah, skies. That's a luxury. Here, so. <laughs> I know. And I feel like I squander it because I... <laughs> Um, I used to be so much more into astrophotography than I am now. It's, I don't know, I think I'm just getting lazy or bored with it, but I feel like this would be kind of a, a new kind of venture to try, try this out and see what I can come up with just to, you know, try something new. So. Yeah. And like, you know, maybe you'll get hooked on it and like, I'm hoping to get, hoping to get some <laughs> listeners hooked on it, like unexpectedly, you know, because, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure my wife hopes I don't get hooked. Right. On it. Yeah. That's, that's funny. Because it, it is a rabbit hole once you get hooked on it of buying upgrades of gear and all that. But that's like another reason right. I've been so open to like share my knowledge with everyone like in the local scene here uh, is because I want more people to come out and image with me because not many people do this in the first place, you know? <laughs> well, and if you're doing, what did you, what did you call it? Um, exposure hours or exposure minutes? Oh yeah. Getting your total exposure time up. Your yeah. Total exposure time. <laughs> you probably want some company. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because I'm. 
I'm going out on, you know, every clear night that I'm able to, which, you know, if I'm driving to a dark site, that's two to three times a month, you know, hopefully. Right. Man, that's a lot. (laughs) And when you said uh, you nudge your camera through that process of doing your stacked images, like, is you're basically just making sure that the object that you're trying to capture is somewhere closest to the middle of your for a uh, middle of your frame. Um, I guess right. I assumed that the, that the software would correct for that on its own, but I guess not. Well, it, it does. Um, so the, like, let's say the Orion constellation, for example, like it'll, it'll move more than you think. Like, I mean, I'm sure every nightscaper knows, knows the sky pretty well, but it'll move more than you think in like 30 minutes time. So, you know, maybe after 10 minutes, you know, part of that constellation's moving up into the, the bad part of your lens where stars are a little wonky. So you right. want to nudge it back into the center of your lens to get the, a good flat field. And uh, so like, if you're not, if you're just using a tripod, like you're going to have to nudge your camera a little every once in a while. Don't be like super picky that it's on the same pixel every time. Cause like I said, the software will align that for you. Okay. But um, cool. <laughs> I'm kind of on that same note though. Like once you do have a tracker that opens you up to like a lot of artistic um, possibilities. So like a big part of my image planning is actually to like frame the nebula. You know, if you put everything front and center on every single nebula, it kind of gets boring. So like I've, I spend a lot of time like planning my shots and putting the nebula like in an interesting part of the frame to where your eyes kind of like dive deep into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. And it, that makes it a lot easier when you have a tracker and your your frame is the same. Right, no, that makes, that totally makes yeah. sense. Um, um, not to dive even more into the rabbit hole, but one other question I had for you was, um, have you ever taken your deep sky objects and like composited them into other images? <laughs> <laughs> no. And that crosses the line of not fun for me. You know, I like, I like to keep things kind of like as true as they are in the okay. sky. <laughs> um, yeah. And like, no, some people will, some people will do like what they call them dreamscapes right. where they'll take a cool, like deep, deep sky photo and then put it behind some mountains or right, something. I've seen a lot of those. And like, as long as they, as long as they say what it is, like that's completely yeah. fine. Yeah. But yeah, it does look pretty, but it's I know to me that's like I kind of lose my interest in that. Right. It's like that's definitely not real. <laughs> uh, do you ever um, take uh, try to do this with uh, planets? And uh, so I have fiddled around with planets, and so astrophotography, deep space objects versus planetary imaging is like two separate types of gear because you know planets are like you're zooming in to like 2000 millimeter focal length if not more to to get a nice planet sized Hmm. image right so what i have done is use some of my club owned equipment to image you know jupiter and saturn and mars and planetary imaging man that's a whole nother topic because it's the process of that is totally different too Hmm. because uh what, what you actually do in planetary imaging is take really high frame rate video because when you're looking at the planet at that high focal length it looks like you're underwater because of the atmosphere so like they take really high frame rate video of the planet and then throw that in different specialized software that'll find the spots that aren't affected as much by the atmosphere wow (laughs) yeah it it sounds crazy but the software does it for you so that's fascinating i had no idea i was just assumed people had high-end telescopes and that they somehow slapped them onto their cameras and called it good to go. <laughs> yeah, man, it's it's like that's like a whole different ballpark of astrophotography. Huh. And like that to me, like I don't do planetary photography because, you know, you can only do that 
maybe like four months out of the year and then you're imaging the same like four objects all like every month and like i like to have a big book of targets to go after and there's tons of nebula in the sky like i'll never run out of things to do huh yeah i guess i um i guess i never really realized that there was that many nebula have you done much in the southern hemisphere no, I'm I'm been northern hemisphere all my life, uh, but I hope uh-huh. to someday take a trip down there and you know either either rent some equipment or mail my equipment down there and do some imaging of some southern targets. Yeah, because there's um I I feel stupid for not knowing, but I know it, like all the people that I see that shoot in the southern hemisphere Milky Way shots, they have that big bulbous uh, nebula that every once in a while shows up that looks really cool. Oh yeah. It's like the the large Magellanic cloud yeah, and the small Magellanic cloud. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those yeah. are like our satellite galaxies, which is pretty cool. Yeah, they don't show up here in the northern hemisphere, though. I don't think so. Yeah, I can only imagine what they look like. You know? Yeah, they they look like they're pretty, pretty cool. cool. Um, I mean, I yeah, always that's, that's for sure on my bucket list. I'm it's I'm I always see the Andromeda um, here in the north, but I've I've never been able to see those other ones. So. Yeah, and another pretty one, if you're hitting the Google, is the Carina Nebula. That's like their Orion Nebula. It's like really pretty. Cool. Well, awesome, dude. Well, um, I guess I have uh, two quest- two more questions for you. Um, so uh, what advice would you have for other photographers, maybe not necessarily relating to um, astrophotography, but maybe as someone who's, um, young and kind of uh, new new to the scene. Okay, so for sure, like whatever equipment you have, use that. Uh, you know, if you can shop used on Craig, if you're interested in photography, um, but you don't have any gear, you know, shop used on Craigslist first and just get your camera. And if you're interested in nightscapes, like drive out somewhere dark and just play, like just like have fun with your camera and like use every setting on there and try to get things to show up that look cool. Awesome. Well, um, who would you recommend to be on the podcast? So first is kind of like where I go to for benchmark images. And uh, this is an astrophotographer. Uh, his name's Rogelio Bernal Andreo. I don't know if I butchered his name or not. If I did, I'm sorry. Uh, but his website is deepskycolors.com. And what he does is he'll take a picture of a chunk of sky that, you know, everyone has seen before. But then you look at his image and there's all this faint dust in there that you haven't seen in anyone else's photo. It's like, wow, like, how did he get all that faint dust to show? Then you look at his total exposure time and it's like 100 plus hours. <laughs> it's just it's just it's like nuts. So like he'll he'll make the sky look completely different than what you're used to seeing. And like it's all it's all actually up there. It's all real. So that's one guy I'd recommend. Definitely benchmark astrophotos. And then uh, so another one, uh, his name is Warren Keller. And his website is billionsandbillions.com. And what he does is on kind of like on the processing side of astrophotography. So he's taking um, some like one of the popular processing software called PixInsight. And he's trying to make it kind of like a PixInsight for dummies. Like he's really trying to bring it down to um, the consumer, like general public level to where he can get everyone to understand the software. Hmm. So like he's doing a lot um to make it more accessible to people just starting. That's cool. Yeah. So on the processing side, he's definitely doing a lot. He's came out with a couple books and everything. Um, and then finally Trevor Jones. So he's got a YouTube channel. 
Um, and his website is Astro Backyard, same as his YouTube, I believe. And what he's doing is really trying to get people hooked on astrophotography. So like he's imaging from his backyard up in Canada, like and documenting everything he does and really like pushing it out to the public to try to get people interested in it, which is really cool. Cause like, you know, if you go on YouTube, you don't see a lot of astrophotography channels and he's actually like doing it. Like he has a pretty big following. Um, so that's really cool that he's reaching out to so much of the public, uh, trying to get people excited about astrophotography. Yeah, that is cool. Well, wow, man. Thanks so much. I feel like I learned um, about as much as my brain can handle, uh, <laughs> at least to start <laughs> Sorry out Sorry if with. I overloaded. No, <laughs> it's perfect. It's the perfect amount of, of information. So I think I think our listeners will, will also appreciate it. So thanks again, man. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's fun. Yeah, how how can uh, how can people learn more about what you're doing? So uh, you can look me up. Um, I guess if you Google Andrew Klinger astrophotography, uh, one or two of my websites will come up with my gallery on it. I don't have a specific website, but I am on Flickr and I am on Instagram, AK underscore Astro. Cool. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely put uh, links to that in the liner notes if people want to check that out. Yeah. And uh, anyone listening, feel free to reach out for me for any like help on, you know, getting started in this. I love to help out. Awesome, dude. Well, thanks so much. That's what this is all about. Uh, Having the community help each other out. So thanks again. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt. Well, thanks to Andrew for taking the time to visit with us on the podcast this week. Uh, I know I learned a lot about deep sky astrophotography and I can't wait to... um, to see what you guys come up with i'd love to see your experiments over on the facebook group for the podcast it's uh, pretty easy to find just search for f-stop collaborate and listen um check out the liner notes um you can find links to andrew's work and uh other um devices that he recommends and the software that he recommends straight over on the blog at uh, mattpainphotography.com and um If you have any ideas for the podcast, uh, suggestions, um, anything, I'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, Reach out to me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, Matt Payne Photo or Matt Payne Photography. Uh, Thanks for listening and tune in next week.